Welcome to Charity Village Connects. I'm your host, Mary Barrel. That's the sound of a hummingbird pollinating our world and making it a better place. The hummingbird is Charity Village's logo because we strive, like the industrious hummingbird, to make connections across the nonprofit sector and help make positive change. Over this series of podcasts, we'll explore topics that are vital to the nonprofit sector in Canada. Topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, mental health in the workplace, the gap in female representation in leadership, and many other subjects crucial to the sector. We'll offer insight that will help you make sense of your life as a nonprofit professional, make connections to help navigate challenges, and support your organization to deliver on its mission. In this episode, we'll continue to explore the mental health and burnout issues that affect nonprofit professionals and examine what's being called the Great Resignation. In fact, we'll ask point blank Is the Great Resignation real? And is it impacting the Canadian nonprofit sector? I think we're definitely seeing a transition. There's no question about that. It's a really, really significant shift, either have already changed or are considering it. It's not clear that it's a symptom of massive numbers of people throwing up their hands and saying, I won't work anymore. There's a big discussion about whether the great resignation in the US is actually the great retirement. I think what the world is actually experiencing in terms of the labor force is more of a great migration. The last 10 years, the turnover rate has increased every year. So. Technically, you could say we've had a great resignation every year for the last 10 years. I feel like I'm always trying to find balance in my life. Balancing with working and all the kids stuff, my relationship with my husband. Every day it's like, okay, how am I going to do this? How are we going to get through this? The media, particularly outlets south of the border, has spent considerable time reporting about the Great Resignation. Remote workers are choosing to not return to their in-person jobs. Business leaders are walking away, and burnout is being felt at all levels throughout the workforce. This begs the question, is this happening on both sides of the border and in the nonprofit sector as well? Are nonprofits seen as a desirable career path? Have inequitable workplaces and burnout caused high turnover? We'll talk with a number of experts and delve into these issues as well as look for solutions. It's being called the Great Resignation. There was 23 of us and 20 of us quit. I had a lot of free time to think what I truly valued as a human being. I could not work for somebody that treats their employees that way any longer. And that all came down to my own personal freedom. I immediately found another job after I quit. The environment is so much different. They appreciate their employees. Throughout the pandemic, We've experienced lockdowns followed by easing restrictions, then openings and lockdowns again. Borders were closed, small groups of bubbles allowed. We've celebrated birthdays over Zoom and postponed major life events. Through all of this, our experiences at work have been impacted too. Now it's said that we're experiencing the great resignation. With employees leaving their jobs in record numbers and the rise of the burnout epidemic in the age of the global pandemic, with workers experiencing burnout more than ever before. It's safe to say that our collective well-being at work has been significantly challenged since the start of the pandemic. But how can we get a measure of the problem? In the fall of 2021, the YMCA WorkWell branch published a report entitled Insights to Impact the depleted, the overworked, and the underappreciated. The report tracked the well-being of workers of the employees in the communities they serve. As Jim Maas, executive director of YMCA WorkWell, explains, the findings were extremely concerning and showed, if not a great resignation in Canada, a strong prospect for one. What we found was almost 3x the number of people considering leaving their job in the next six months. 
and twice as many people who had left their job in the past six months than prior to the pandemic. So really, really significant shift either have already changed or are considering it. And so, you know, you can't go back and recapture those people who have already left, but can we learn lessons from why? What was the deal breaker? And can we still make a change, a positive change for those people who are maybe heading towards the door, but they're not out the door yet? Lisa Taylor, president of The Challenge Factory, says the Canadian experience is distinct from that of our southern neighbours and combines a variety of significant shifts in the workforce happening simultaneously. There has been a lot of discussion about the Great Resignation and is it different on this side of the border than on the U.S. side of the border? And I think there's a couple of things that are actually the most important questions for us to be asking and some of the context that we need to be setting. So the first is, even before we hit the pandemic, we were seeing really significant shifts and changes in how people were approaching their careers, in the impact the aging workforce was having in career paths and patterns, who was leaving and who was coming into the sector. So what we like to say at Challenge Factory is there was a talent revolution that was underway, and then we added a crisis on top of it. And as we exit the crisis, what we're seeing is that that revolution has continued even while we've been distracted and only paying attention to the crisis. And now we really do need to address some pretty critical questions about who is staying within organizations and who is leaving and why is that happening? So some people have said that the vast majority in the U.S. of the reported cases of the Great Resignation are actually people that are choosing to take early retirement, that it's actually the great retirement in the new context of retirement, which means leaving where they are now, taking a bit of a break and starting a legacy career in some other field or in some other place. So it's not an across the board answer to say, yes, we're seeing a great resignation. What we are seeing is we're seeing an increased sense of career ownership. The unique pressures, shock, and uncertainty of COVID-19 had a near immediate effect on employees' well-being. According to the YMCA Work Well Workplace Well-Being Report, by August 2020, just five months into the pandemic, the percentage of working adults in the Toronto region reporting unhealthy well-being scores more than doubled, jumping from 22% to 46%. Nearly every second person in the region was experiencing unhealthy well-being at work. Equally alarming, the percentage of respondents with healthy scores also dropped substantially, falling from 53% to 23%, not even half of the numbers seen in 2019. By March 2021, one full year into the pandemic, there were no real signs of progress. Scores had remained virtually unchanged since the start of the pandemic, with 45% of working adults responding with unhealthy well-being scores. I was having a really hard time at work and I went to my HR at that time and what I was told to do is to go home and take a nap. People are reassessing their options and most cite burnout as one of the biggest reasons. That's no surprise. A study by Asana of 13,000 knowledge workers across eight countries found that 71% had experienced burnout in the past year. Melissa Swift, global leader of workforce transformation at Corn Ferry, notes that companies basically burned out the global workforce over the past year. One of the ways people deal with burnout is by switching employers. Burnout alone as deep and widespread as it clearly is, doesn't fully explain the phenomenon, however. After all, in the nonprofit sector, we were in an epidemic of burnout even before the pandemic. What the pandemic did was provide time to think about what we really value. We've had time to reflect on what truly makes us thrive and which parts of our pandemic lives we want to take with us into our post-pandemic future, and which parts we'd rather leave behind. Burnout is real. With more on that, here's Deborah LaGrove, president of Crawford Connect, 
an executive search firm serving the nonprofit sector, who hopes the new Right to Disconnect legislation to take effect in Ontario this year may help leaders embrace better work-life balance for themselves and their staff. The nonprofit sector is well known for having this sort of hero mentality that the more hours you put in, the more dedicated you are to your cause. So what happens with that is that if a leader is putting all these hours into their job and burning out, staff are following their leaders. They're doing exactly the same thing. So they think, hey, I worked all weekend. And the problem is, is that people don't always recognize that they are burnt out. So when I'm working with client organizations, I can see the burnout because you can hear it in the attitude. They're overwhelmed with the problems of every day. So it's a trickle down effect. So if the leader is burnt out, then everyone else is burnt out. What I like to see is and encourage organizations to start to celebrate the time off. And we have the new legislation coming in, in June, I believe, the right to disconnect. And I think that that's going to help people with not only developing the policies, but giving people permission to disconnect and having the conversations that need to happen with your team. And to be able to say, there's no working this weekend, everybody. We're all taking a break. I'm taking a break and I want to see everybody else taking a break. So I'm hoping that that will help with the burnout that we are seeing and hopefully starting to have more realistic expectations of our staff. Let's circle back to Jim Moss as we listen to his take on burnout and its harmful effect on workplace culture. Burnout is a bit misunderstood in itself. Burnout is the inability to manage workplace stress in a healthy way. So effectively, you start to move into a loss position where you can't maintain and overcome the stress in a reasonable amount of way week after week after week. And so it's a chronic condition. So stress shows up in things like cynicism, where we start to check out mentally, we become a little bit less engaged as a protection mechanism. And then an escalation is we start to actually speak negatively about people, about customers, about coworkers, about whatever. Those are some of the hallmarks that burnout is settling in. Marianne Kerr, author of Tarnished, a detailed look at toxic work culture in the nonprofit sector, shares her view that burnout is frequently a symptom of deeper systemic problems. I think the burnout is a symptom of a different problem. Burnout may be causing people to leave organizations, but why are they burning out? We come into the sector, I believe, we tend to be people that care about the world, we care about a particular issue in the world, we're interested in making change, and we suffer from something called compassion fatigue. You're not only caring about the work that you do and the people your organization seeks to serve, but you're dealing with now the added piece of having to be worried about a worldwide global pandemic. And so I think that people are burning out, but the burnout itself isn't the problem. The problem is what's happening in organizations to cause folks to burn out. Veronica Utten. Managing Director of V. Utten and Associates, believes the preponderance of female workers in the nonprofit sector dramatically increases the incidence of burnout as a consequence of women shouldering the burden of family responsibilities during the pandemic in addition to the demands of their jobs. Certainly because we know over three quarters of the sector is supported by female workers. And those female workers in the sandwich generation are dealing with it on both ends. They're juggling homeschooling and they're juggling the realities of elder care. And so in some instances, those individuals are making pretty difficult career choices. But certainly CAMH is telling us that anxiety and depression is at an all-time high. And so those effects are real. Services are being delayed as a result of lack of capacity inside of organizations. These 
boomer females who are managing both ends of the spectrum oftentimes find themselves having to scramble for care in a pinch. And so burnout, it's a real thing. The Workplace Wellbeing Report cites unmanageable workloads as currently the biggest threat to workplace well-being in our communities. Workload is an incredibly complex phenomenon and not easy to manage. For many in the nonprofit sector, the amount of work on their plates has only continued to increase. When factoring in higher turnover rates, this means that many organizations in our sector have been tasked with doing more with less, leading to increasingly demanding workloads on those who remain on the job. On top of this, our capacity to manage workload has been depleted. Research suggests that increased levels of exhaustion diminish our ability to perform at our best. And this data clearly demonstrates that employees in our sector are exhausted. In the age of COVID, with chronic stress and isolation being a nearly universal experience, Many people find it hard to stay on top of even a typical pre-pandemic workload. With workers leaving the workplace, this means that many who remain at their job are facing increasingly daunting workloads with diminished capacities, and it's created an epidemic of exhaustion. What is striking is that this burnout epidemic has spread through all the ranks, from frontline workers to leaders. Jim Moss speaks to the fatigue of leadership in the nonprofit sector. We saw for the first time in the history of data collection that we've been doing, which is over a decade, we saw leader health and well-being decline below frontline staff. It really is remarkably outlying to see, and it was quite sad to see and kind of sobering because what that means is decision-making power is now under pressure. It's harder to make good and important decisions day in and day out. And so you can imagine more people needing to take time off, take a leave, take a knee, go on disability. And it's not easy to replace leaders for short-term or long-term. Another really major complicating factor for not-for-profits is we haven't always been great about training and development. We don't have as much money. We don't have as many people. We're always generally a little bit under-resourced from where we might ideally like to be. And so it's not uncommon that there's a bit of an organizational deficit in leadership development, which means that when that leader leaves or takes a knee, we might not have somebody really ready to go and step into that role. Leadership fatigue and the resulting departures of senior management is hugely disruptive in the short term for most organizations. But it can also be an opportunity for positive change in the long term, as Deborah LaGrove explains. I've watched for many different organizations that we've worked with where we're replacing a very long-term executive director who may have been in the role 30 and sometimes I've seen 40 years. And you can just imagine that if someone was working as the direct report to that executive director, waiting for that person to retire, hopefully, and they've been waiting forever. You end up losing that talent because they're not gonna wait forever. So I do see that this is a really important, positive move and will help us to open up this sector and to give those, if not emerging leaders or people who are already in leadership positions, but the chance to take over and to step into these roles, we need that desperately in this sector. I think we need some new talent. More and more, we're hearing of a toxic work environment, which results in an increased stress in the day-to-day -day work life. Lack of recognition, favoritism, unhealthy communication, gossiping, and high turnover are just a few reasons that cause a burnout work culture. He'd just go off and he'd go crazy. And this was happening every day? Every day, every day. What was he trying to do? He was just trying to humiliate me and he was doing it in front of everyone. Toxicity at the workplace also includes bad leadership, poor management skills, loosened codes of conduct, and lack of communication. It can create trouble, conflict, low morale, 
excessive tension, negative results, illness, high turnover, and even abusive behavior amidst employees. Toxic workplaces are not a new phenomenon, but how prevalent is it throughout the nonprofit sector? And does the toxicity take on unique characteristics in a nonprofit workplace? We raise these questions with Marianne Kerr, author of Tarnished. I think when you experience workplace bullying in the social impact space, it's somehow worse because you go into an organization and you think this is perhaps a social justice organization. They care. The work that they're doing is very mission focused. So you're a little bit shocked, actually, to discover that it's a combination of all kinds of things like micromanaging, like diminishing people's work like excluding people from information and meetings they need in order to be effective. When you add all of those kinds of things together, it creates a a really unsafe environment. And I do think that I see better and people I know who have worked in both. So I've always been in the nonprofit charitable space, but people I know who have worked in both and have transitioned back out of our sector say it's much worse here. Marianne also shares her views about the reasons behind why it's different in the nonprofit sector from the corporate sector. I think that in the corporate sector, there is more thought and resource given to the idea that if we take care of our employees, our employees will take care of our business. There is a really strong sense that that is true. It's been proven over and over. That's their whole focus. Everything revolves around the employee and they're at the center and the heart of every single decision. I think that we don't invest in that idea. We don't invest in leadership training. We don't invest in coaching. We don't invest in organizational health in general. We think organizational health, well, that's about making sure I have the right data systems in place or the right technology in order to be able to pivot, let's say, in the time of a pandemic. And, you know, yes, of course, that's important. But organizational health is really well beyond technology, beyond finance, beyond fundraising, beyond how many LinkedIn followers or Twitter connections I have. It's about how do I work with other people? It's about the relationships around the leadership table. It's the relationships around the board table. It's the expression of our values and the expression of our vision in everything that we do. And that's organizational health. It's an organization that is is working because we're taking care of each other. We're thoughtful about everything that we do and say, and it reflects the value system that we've agreed upon when we came into an organization, you know, in that recruitment process and you checked the website and you saw this list of beautiful values. And then you're a few weeks or months into an organization and it's like getting hit by a truck. What is happening? This is not what I signed up for. And it happens over and over again. It's a real shock. You cannot continue to oppress, beat down, marginalize, redline, and kill a people and think we ain't gonna stand up and eventually fight back. The remains of more than 200 children have been located buried on the site of a former residential school, in fact, the largest residential school in the entire national network. Police in London, Ontario, have confirmed that a family struck in a motor vehicle crash last night were targeted, and police say it was premeditated and pre-planned, an act of hate. The tragedies of the murder of George Floyd, the discovery of mass graves of Indigenous children at former residential school sites, a Muslim family killed in a targeted vehicle attack on Canadian streets, and incidents of anti-Asian hate crimes and assaults are just some of the recent events that have heightened the awareness in society of issues of social justice, racism, and discrimination in our world during the pandemic. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is emerging as one of the most critical challenges in our society and workplaces and the nonprofit sector is no exception. In 2021, Stats Canada released a report on the results of a survey that confirmed what many in the sector already knew, that those who identify as immigrants, persons of color, LGBTQ individuals, persons with a disability, and First Nations, Métis, and Inuit 
are vastly underrepresented on nonprofit and charity boards and in leadership roles. We've heard anecdotally that many nonprofit organizations have failed to provide equitable and inclusive workplaces, which is another reason why workers have started to leave their jobs. We return to Jim Moss and look to his research to see if there may be DEI trends identified in the data. In our community surveys, we asked a number of demographic questions that allowed us to look at smaller groups, minority groups, and different groups who identify in different ways. And we found a number of really compelling trends. So first of all, what you said about this as an additional spectrum that is impacting many people and pushing them towards the door or having them rethink their relationship is very much true from everything that we can tell. And so we think that those people have experienced this historically for a very, very long time systemically. And so they're almost closer to the door already. And as other things start to pile on, it can break that relationship faster, differently, right? And then I think the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, really emerged and society was lit on fire in a whole other and needed way, which was a complicating factor in the middle of a pandemic, but also super important because look at all of the work that's maybe starting or getting funded better to change some of these outcomes. What we found was if you identified yourself as marginalized in any one way, you were significantly more likely to feel disengaged, feel lower levels of trust, to be likely to consider leaving your role. And if you happen to have two ways in which your identity, had you be a member of a minority group or a marginalized group, it was really quite significant. So, you know, if we looked at race, if we looked at gender, some of the things that we might think of more commonly, if there was an added complication of a health, a neurological disability or something else as well, it really pushed people farther away. And so I think it's twofold. First of all, we need to be disaggregating data to understand not just how the majority might be feeling, but how the smaller groups are feeling and why is that different. Adding to Jim's research are the views of Wendy Sukier, Executive Director and Founder of the Diversity Institute at Ryerson University. I do think that the other thing that's massive and really underconsidered is the explosion in needs for mental health supports, like the extent, and this is particularly true of women, and we know that women are dominate at least the lower levels of the nonprofit sector, though not necessarily the top levels. We know that women have seen a much greater deterioration in their mental health. And in fact, if you break it down by different ethnic groups, you'll see big differences too. People of Chinese origins are the ones that currently have the lowest level of mental health, according to our environic survey, and the biggest decline. And we can all imagine that that probably has a lot to do with the rise in anti-Asian racism. We've heard that there are some people who don't want to go back to traditional workplaces. And in fact, I've seen some evidence that as companies are calling their employees back, some people are saying, I think I like working at home. <laughs> I'm going to look for an option that suits my interests and my lifestyle. While an organization may talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the programs that they have as part of their recruitment, once the new hire is onboarded, there's sometimes a challenge about how much the workplace culture is actually inclusive and equitable. Ironically, despite its challenges, remote work from a toxic workplace during the pandemic offered a welcome reprieve to many racialized, LGBTQ+, and other underrepresented people who felt constant microaggressions, marginalization, and exclusions from co-workers in their pre-pandemic in-person working environment, making the prospect of returning to the office distressing. Definitely we've seen evidence of that. And in fact, a recent report suggested that women were less likely to want to return to the workplace. 
because in spite of the burden, it gives them more flexibility. And the other group that doesn't want to return to the workplace racialize people because of the constant microaggressions. So it looks like white men will be returning to the workplace in larger numbers than others. Veronica Utten, Managing Director of V. Utten and Associates, has observed the same phenomenon in her work, providing talent management services to the nonprofit sector. We asked Veronica to share some anecdotal experiences of the failure of having effective, equitable, and inclusive workplaces, driving the departure of either leaders or their staff. And then you have individuals who have experienced the microaggressions, the isolation, and not being able to actually be in that workspace as themselves. And in this period of virtual work, those individuals who have actually experienced psychological safety in their own home offices are actually considering, is it a good thing for me to go back into that workspace? Will I be safe? Will I be able to come as my whole self into that workspace? A lot of individuals I've heard from are considering their options. Wendy goes on to tell us that there may be an accidental and unexpected positive impact of remote work during the pandemic as it relates to diversity in the workplace. Racialized people in general have been hit harder by COVID, but some of the research that's coming out now is sort of interesting because it does suggest that this environment has been a bit of an equalizer. All of the research suggests that women and racialized people and Indigenous people and persons with disabilities and so on are often disadvantaged in the workplace because of the power and pervasiveness of social networks and favoritism and homophilia where people who are the same hang out together, go for coffee together and so on. And maybe in this new virtual environment, it's less about those informal unspoken rules and more about doing the work. Clearly, there are systemic issues with diversity, equity, and inclusion in the nonprofit sector, just as there is in the for-profit sector. Lisa Taylor believes the nonprofit sector is at a crossroads and leaders have to hold each other accountable in order to make meaningful change. We lack the courage to take stands where we need to take stands. And we look to each other to be able to get social cues on who's doing what, who's moving forward with this, who's putting this policy in place. We talked about the legislation, the right to disconnect. That's a social cue that then sets the bar so that everyone knows, oh, okay, I can't abuse my staff by having them work 24-7 anymore. In the pandemic, we've lost the opportunities for leaders to network and to meet each other and to get the social cues of who's doing what. And people have really been left to their own devices in order to really use their own leadership skills, their own background, their own personal values in order to keep advancing. We need to get back to holding each other accountable so that we're building a sector that we want. But what of the small and under-resourced nonprofit organization? What can leaders of small organizations who may feel ill-equipped or unprepared to address the issue of a toxic workplace do to begin their DEI journey? Veronica Utten shares her thoughts. Well, I think for some, they recognize that they do need to make a change. They are taking some steps inside of their organizations, even if it is simply to assemble a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee task force for them to start the audit process inside to actually ask themselves, why do we do what we do the way we do it? And is there a different way, a different approach that we could recruit, for instance, that we could actually design our job descriptions, for instance? And so it simply takes the courage to embrace the fact that you do have systemic concerns inside of your organization and it's up to you inside of the organization to start to unravel those barriers that are getting in the way of being a more inclusive workspace. Wendy Sukir, 
founder of the Diversity Institute, agrees that taking genuine, meaningful action is crucial to transformational change. Lip service to the cause of DEI won't cut it. Leaders have to walk the talk. Good intentions aren't good enough anymore, and you see a lot of people starting to get called out for performative EDI activities. You have to. We've done work with large charities that say, oh, <laughs> there are people who are racialized, who have money. We should adjust our philanthropic strategies so that we can reach into their pockets. But if you create a strategy to position yourself to fundraise with racialized communities and your entire staff are white, or you don't have programs that address the specific needs of newcomers, racialized people, and so on, or your website is all nice little white children, you've really got a problem. And I think increasingly people in the community are paying attention to whether or not organizations are walking the talk. And so you have to be a bit more thoughtful about signing up for this proclamation or flying a rainbow flag if you're not going to then follow through with a very deliberate strategy. I would say that's that accountability and the expectations have increased, but so has the accountability. And you can't get away with the same kind of general statements about diversity as our strength. People are looking for action. I think the other thing for me that's, of course, front and center is this added attention to leadership and organizations really starting to apply a genuine gender and diversity lens to procurement. And I remember Legal Leaders for Diversity a few years ago, one of my colleagues picked up a magazine and it was five white men that were top lawyer or something. And she went as if I would do business with them and put it down. And so we did see in some sectors them starting to really push for a diversity and inclusion lens on procurement. But that's much broader now. A pandemic forced power shift, employees gaining the upper hand and making lifestyle demands with employers hoping to keep them happy. We're seeing more perks around flexibility, higher wages, bonuses. From a family life balance perspective, we can make different decisions. Transformational change is never easy, but there is a growing recognition among nonprofit leaders that safe, diverse, inclusive, and equitable workplace cultures and policies are critical to the future of nonprofits and charities. We've explored how challenges of burnout, exhaustion, and mental health issues experienced during the pandemic have added to the myriad of reasons why, according to the YMCA Work Well report, so many not-for-profit workers, from the front line to the leadership, have either left their jobs in the sector or are contemplating doing so. Clearly, problems exist, and throughout this episode, we've identified many. But the problems won't go away by themselves. It's being called the Great Resignation. The Great Resignation. The Great Retirement. The Great Revolution, whatever we want to label it. Most experts we spoke to say the nonprofit sector in Canada is not immune to an epidemic of burnout among workers, toxic workplaces that exclude and marginalize people, and the failure of organizations to provide an emotionally and psychologically safe environment that's compelling many to leave their jobs. What can leaders do to stem the tide of departures? and make meaningful change in time to persuade their remaining staff to stay? And how can nonprofit employers create a welcoming, inclusive, and healthy workplace culture that attracts new talent? Our guests offer their thoughts on what the future may hold and how to affect meaningful change within organizations. First, let's check back with Deborah LaGrove of Crawford Connects for her thoughts. Take the pulse of your current team. Have conversations with them. Find out where they're at. Really focus on retaining your current team. And find out what they want. What are their goals? 
you've already trained those people. They already know your organization. So make sure that you're really looking after them first. Then the secondary is if you still have to recruit, then start to think about what can you offer potential employees coming to the table. The people that work in nonprofit, they're already sold about working in nonprofit. You don't have to speak to their heart as much because they're already there for a reason. What else can you offer them to keep them working in this particular sector over the long term so that we're avoiding some of the things that we've talked about today, the burnout and so forth? What does the long-term plan look like? Veronica Utten weighs in with her observations. What are you doing to keep people engaged inside of your organization, engaged in the work? Now is the time for managers to be stepping up and demonstrating their care for the individuals that report to them. How aware are they of their own styles and of the needs of their staff? So for instance, do you have leaders in place who can lead with confidence, who can lead in a time of ambiguity, who can navigate change the way change is forcing us to rethink the way that we work? And are these managers communicating with clarity what their expectations are of their team members and with a dose of empathy. Certainly, we have seen those managers who are actually exercising care with their employees. These are the individuals who are able to hang on to retain these staff. So if there are two things that I would suggest that organizations pay attention to, it's their policies and practices, how flexible are they becoming, and are you creating a workplace that focuses on well-being first. With her perspective, here's author Marianne Kerr. I'm concerned about the sector. I see a lot of job postings. I see that people are having difficulty filling some of the roles. So I'm concerned, but I'm also really hopeful because I see really bright, smart, young people coming into the sector right at the beginning of their careers, which was, you know, in my generation, it wasn't necessarily the first thing we thought to do. I think you see a lot more of that now. I think so. I'm hopeful. And I think my advice would be, listen to those young people because they're driving what the future is going to look like. They don't put up with what we did, what I did as a young person in the workforce. It would never have occurred to me to expect that I could be flexible in my daily hours. If it said nine to five, I was nine to five, and then you did all the overtime as well. It would never occur to me that in the middle of a day, I could take my dog for a walk or even consider that I could bring my dog to work, right? All of these kinds of things. Listen to the young people because their expectations are different and their expectations are right. Lisa Taylor believes that looking at the workplace we aspire to create for future generations helps leaders identify the changes they need to make today to transform their organizations now. One great question that we often ask in our workshops is we'll say to people, imagine the world of work and imagine the conditions that your children's children are working in. Describe to me what you dread and what you dream about that world for your children's children. And by putting things into the future, it is amazing how forthcoming we get all of the examples of what's causing toxicity in the workplace today and all of the positive attributes that cause dream work to happen today. What we need to do is we need to get those out on the table and then we need to make them true for ourselves, not wait till our children's children, but actually make them true today. And I think that that happens through open and honest conversations. I'm going to come back to the key leadership theme that we have at Challenge Factory with the groups that we're working with, which is trust and courage. It takes a lot of trust and a lot of courage, but there's a lot of problems and we need to be able to address them. For Wendy Sukier, actions speak louder than words in the DEI space, especially in retaining employees and attracting new talent. But even well-intentioned leaders often struggle with how to make meaningful and transformational change. Recently, the Diversity Institute has launched a new toolkit to provide resources to help nonprofits achieve the 50-30 challenge. 
Wendy explains. There's no shortcuts. I mean, there are some organizations that will say, we'll ask you three questions and we will give you your score and then you're done (laughs) your EDI strategy. To me, the most effective way to, to manage this is you just think about it as part of your strategy. There are lots of tools and supports. The 50-30 challenge, which is focused on achieving gender parity, which is the 50%, and increased diversity, which is the 30%, on boards and in leadership roles across sectors. We're in the process of developing toolkits. So checkboxes, this is how you do your EDI strategy. Oh, you need a policy on harassment in respectful workplaces? Here's an example. Oh, you need a skills matrix for your board that includes diversity and inclusion. Here's one. So to us, it's just a process of systematically going through what you're doing. And, you know, pick the low-hanging fruit. Pick the things that are easiest to address and open the door for conversation. For Jim Moss... Executive Director of YMCA WorkWell, during this era of remote work in the midst of a crisis, isolation, depression, and burnout act to disconnect colleagues and break down the cohesion of teams, leading many workers to check out, withdraw, and head for the exit. Jim says immediate and continual outreach from leaders and managers is critical for re-engagement and retaining them through the recovery from the pandemic. Keep communicating. Keep hyper-communicating. So we've seen the priority of leader communication kind of go down a bit, but still stay in the top three or the top five. People in a period of this kind of prolonged uncertainty, they want to know what it is that they need to know and that that channel is strong. You know, if you think about it, we were hearing from the prime minister and the provincial leaders every single day. That hasn't happened in my entire lifetime. It was kind of wartime level communication, and it set a new standard of expectation. And the more uncertainty we have, the more that we want to know that there's this channel open. So keep over communicating. And it doesn't need to be just the CEO or the CAO or the senior leader. It can be anybody in a leadership position, but just keeping communication channels open. One of the things that we continue to see, which makes perfect sense, is that people are missing team connection. So we're humans. And we've been working in a slightly less human way, very many of us, either isolated, working at home, or working in one location and used to co-mingling with other locations, but not able to because of COVID restrictions. And so team connection opportunities is another thing that people really are asking for. And it's not something we can give them today. But what we've been telling organizations is that doesn't mean you don't talk about it. What it means is you plan and you communicate that at the very first opportunity, we're going to make every effort we can to deliver on improving team connection opportunities. Jim Moss believes that there's a good chance that the enormity of the impact of the pandemic and the existential threat it became for humanity has also created a rare moment for self-reflection and recalibration of one's values and life choices, providing the opportunity for many people to take a step back, rethink their priorities, and really examine what gives their lives meaning and purpose. The nonprofit sector has so much to offer to people who want purpose with a paycheck. Jim says the for-profit sector may well be hiding an important talent pool for nonprofit sector employers. And so one of the trends that we would see from a period of time like this is more people who maybe have been working in for-profit. Something like a global pandemic or an individual life event has you stop and think about where do I get value? And it's not only a paycheck. And so there will be very many people thinking about wanting to do something more meaningful. And so potentially not traditional not-for-profit employees who might be willing to come in and take a pay cut and bring their skill set in, but you've got to go and find them. They're not going to come and look for you and you're probably not marketing to them right now. And there may be some great people out there who might help this existing leadership team that you've got that's a little broken and bruised and bring a little bit of new energy and new experience in. 
but we've got to think about what do they need to hear from us to know that we could be a great place for them to work. And that's not what we've been talking about, maybe historically. Make sure that people feel a sense of hope. It's not lost, right? There's actions we can take. There are things that we can do. Employees and leaders in our sector are exhausted, overworked, and depleted. And these realities are directly contributing to the biggest challenges our workforce is facing. In some nonprofit workplaces, people from underrepresented groups confront an unwelcoming, inequitable culture of microaggressions and discrimination. It's burning employees out, pushing employees to leave their jobs, and it's directly impacting mental health in our communities. This is a problem that deserves to be taken seriously, and these challenges will only persist if organizations don't commit to investing in the well-being of their teams. The Oxford Dictionary defines the word crucible as a situation of severe trial or in which different elements interact, leading to the creation of something new. The experts we spoke to believe the pandemic may well be the crucible that helps transform nonprofit organizations to become diverse workplaces that genuinely manifest values of inclusivity and equity, where leaders embrace policies that support mental health among employees and put the well-being of staff as high a priority as the mission of the organization and where job seekers can find purpose with a paycheck and a place that welcomes and values their whole selves. Check out our show notes and our website for links to resources to help you make transformational change at your organization. I want to thank our guests for joining us and sharing their valuable insight into this problem of the Great Resignation and their helpful advice for solving it. If you'd like to hear the entire conversations with our guests, please visit CharityVillage.com to watch all the video interviews. Charity Village is proud to be the Canadian source for nonprofit news, employment services, funding, e-learning, HR resources and tools, and so much more. Please take a moment to check out our website at CharityVillage.com. In our next episode, we'll explore how the pandemic exposed the urgent need for nonprofit organizations to create diverse revenue streams to support infrastructure, capacity building, and social innovation. We'll look at some of the latest trends, like the ongoing focus on social enterprise and new tools such as impact investments, as well as new legislative possibilities such as Bill S216. We'll talk to experts to weigh the pros and cons, and we'll ask, is the Canadian nonprofit sector ready to embrace these new funding tools? Join us next time on Charity Village Connects. <laughs>